Hello, constant listener. I have a special announcement to make. Tonight's episode is not a standalone story, but a segment of a much larger work. Solace is a cosmic horror novel that I wrote over the last three years. It tells the story of a weary journalist who becomes obsessed with a series of unexplained disappearances. I'm releasing it as an audiobook, starting tonight. The story is broken up into five sections, totaling over eight hours of recorded material. I'm going to release a new section every two weeks. The first section is an hour and a half long, and it's available in full on my Patreon, right now. Part two will be released on January 5th. What you're about to hear is the first 30 minutes of part one. If you enjoy it and would like to hear more, you can do so by becoming a $3 subscriber on my Patreon. You can listen to it on your phone, on the Patreon mobile app, or you can listen to it on desktop, however you prefer. And if you subscribe, you'll also get early access to all the regular episodes of the podcast as well. There's a link in the show notes as well as in my podcast bio, but if you can't see it, it's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. I want to give a huge thank you to everyone that listens, and I really hope you enjoy this. Solace, a novel. Written and performed by Jeffrey Walker. But as he stands before imminent death, he grasps its nature also, and the cosmic import of the step to come. His creative imagination constructs new, fearful prospects behind the curtain of death, and he sees that even there is no sanctuary found. He is the universe's helpless captive, kept to fall into nameless possibilities. From this moment on, he is in a state of relentless panic. Peter Wessel Zapf, The Last Messiah Part 1. Nihilum Chapter 1 Some things are built to be destroyed. It's like an inbuilt mechanism, a predetermined date of annihilation that's written into the blueprints of certain objects and organisms. Sure, everything that's born will one day die, and everything that's built will disintegrate eventually. There's no escaping the cruel force of entropy. But this goes beyond the mere cycle of life and death, of creation and destruction. After all, most things that inhabit the earth serve a purpose while they're there. Structures provide shelter. Bees pollinate flowers. Animals make up the critical links of the food chain. Humans cultivate and discover and inspire. But some things don't fit into this crucial margin of purpose. They exist only to be exterminated. On a foggy November morning in the Chinese city of Xi'an, a robust 27-story apartment building was reduced to rubble in a matter of seconds. There was nothing structurally wrong with the tower. It didn't fail to meet building codes or threaten the safety of prospecting inhabitants. It was the structure's simple lack of occupants that caused its demise. While Xi'an once stood as a beacon for the country's growing urbanization movement, its economic dreams were never fully realized. Nobody ever moved into the gleaming stone monolith. Instead, it stood as an ominous reminder of a crumbling real estate market, a ghost of a lost future. 
and when it was deemed obsolete, it was packed with 1.4 metric tons of explosives and turned to dust. It was created only to stand purposeless. And then, like so many other things on the planet, it was destroyed with impunity. If you want to see truly merciless destruction, though, you must look to nature. It's in nature that life is at its most brutal, its most cunning. After all, the evolution of a successful species often relies on the exploitation of one that's weaker or less adept. Maladaption has a way of luring hapless creatures into the jaws of a hungry planet. In the Pleistocene era, for example, there was a species of giant deer called the Irish elk. Somehow, through an evolutionary misstep, this beast wound up with a pair of antlers far too big to serve any practical purpose. For a creature like that, betrayed by evolution, it doesn't take long for extinction to envelop the lot. Most would get their outrageous headpieces stuck in branches or brush, and the rest met their fate with exhaustion. The weight of their massive antlers inevitably became too much, and their necks would give out. They'd pitch headlong into the dust, their suspended hind legs kicking ceaselessly through the frigid air. I wonder if any of them ever knew they were doomed. Did they try to get up when they buckled over, rubbernecked and lopsided? Or did they just lay there in the loam until starvation or some prowling predator took them? My guess is they fought until their dying breath, like animals tend to do. Most animals, at least. And then, of course, there's humans. The most glaring example of imminent destruction. But the annihilation of man is far more complicated than the demolition of a building or the extinction of an animal. The small calamities we face each day are always such elaborate matters, filled with contradiction and nuance. Though, there is one distinguishing feature of our great folly. While the devastation of most things on earth typically comes from without, the ruin of man often comes from within. We get sick with cancer, and it eats us from the inside out. We become mentally ill, and our brains convince us to destroy ourselves. But we're not always mere victims of fate. We don't always crumble because we haven't mastered our environment. Sometimes our end comes because we're so certain we have. A few years ago, I wrote a piece about a once successful stockbroker who fell on hard times and burned his lavish mansion down to collect on the insurance. Some neighborhood kids were playing ball in the street, and they spotted him making his escape after he set the house ablaze. They watched him climb out of the second-story window from a makeshift rope ladder, wearing a scuba tank and diving goggles, just before the flames devoured his home. Their testimony played a key role in convicting him. I should know I was there in the courtroom, my press pass hanging from a lanyard around my neck, my bloodshot eyes sagging in their sockets. It was just another day in the life of a burned-out journalist. That was, of course, until the judge read the verdict, and I watched the culprit reach into his pocket, retrieve two small capsules, and pop them, without a wink of hesitation, into his mouth. From the moment he crushed the cyanide caps with his teeth, it took only a few seconds for respiratory failure to occur. His arms fell slack as he slumped out of his chair, hitting the ground with a dull thump, his face already a bright, shiny red. 
He formed a lumpy human tripod on the courtroom floor with his forehead and knees. No struggles. No cries for help. Just that disgusting, flatulent sound. Have you ever seen someone die of cyanide poisoning? Have you heard the noises they make? They snore. It's the strangest thing. They actually snore. It's as if they're falling into a deep but harmless sleep. Then the snoring stops, though, and they exude a final suffocating whine, a death rattle of indignity. And when you hear it coming out of a dying man's mouth, it's not something you have the luxury of forgetting. In a matter of seconds, we were all rushed out of the courtroom while a team of EMTs pushed their way in. I spent the next hour in the lobby of the courthouse, wondering how an able-bodied man, with every resource at his disposal, could so quickly become a disgraced, white-collar criminal that chooses to commit suicide in front of a room full of strangers. His hunger for advancement had driven him straight into a dead end, a place from which the progress he had envisioned was no longer possible. In a lot of ways, I supposed it was a very human predicament he'd found himself in. It's the same predicament that the rest of the world is in. We're quickly advancing towards decimation, forging our own extinction in the name of personal enrichment. And maybe that's just what we were built to do. So why am I telling you this? The truth is, I don't know. Maybe it's because I see some of myself in these stories. Maybe I feel like that tower in China, facing imminent destruction, having served no real purpose. Or maybe I'm one of those deer with the oversized antlers, wandering through a doomed existence, destined to fail. Or am I that man in that courtroom, waiting for the gavel to fall so I can pop a few pills and seal my own fate, having known all along that it would end like this? Maybe it's all of those things. Or maybe it's none of them. It's not a conclusion that I can draw for you. I'll bring you as close as I can to the truth, but my reach will inevitably fall short. It may be soon, or it may be in a very long time, but eventually we will part ways, and you will be left to swim back to shore on your own. Then, when your feet are planted firmly in the sand, you will see what all this means to you. Chapter 2 It wanted to rain the morning I met Nathan, but the clouds looked like they couldn't all agree on a place to drop the water. They'd cluster up into a heap and then scatter again, and a few hours before the sun came up, they dissipated almost entirely. I was snaking my way south through the Adirondacks, accompanied only by the sugar maples and yellow birches. It was a long drive, so I was up early, but I didn't mind. Sleep didn't find me much then. After a few hours in the car, the sun finally broke the horizon, and I flipped my sunglasses down off my forehead and over my eyes. I looked at the sun, accenting the diminishing clouds with radiant pink crests of light. The big egg, I said to myself, but was suddenly surprised to hear the sound of my own voice. Sitting on the passenger seat was an old issue of The New Yorker, I'd jotted the address to Nathan's father's house on the cover. Dalton, Massachusetts. I'd never been there, nor had I ever really wanted to. Quaint and pastoral as western Massachusetts is, I never traveled much for leisure. 
My job had sent me to enough places to dull the vibrant alacrity I once felt when I saw a new town. I preferred the road. The road was my little sanctuary, that place between places. Sitting there in my car, occasionally talking to myself, my hands steady on the wheel, my thoughts rooted in nothing but the assignment ahead, that's where I found peace. But I, of all people, should know that when one finds peace, it's never for very long. Peace is little more than an open space in the mind, defenseless against the invasion of uncertainty. My little meditation chamber was rolling along, illuminated by the glare of the morning sun, when a sudden terror came over me, like a thick searing oil being poured over my head. And before I could even react, the feeling had overtaken me. But it wasn't just a typical flash of paranoid anxiety. What I felt was enough to quake my serenity with a stark sense of utter powerlessness. I drew in a deep breath of thin morning air and tried to ignore the rigid burn of agitation settling into my lower chest. An undeniable sense loomed that that drive was the impetus of something very real. Something consequential was about to happen. I'm not much for hunches, but the feeling gripped me with undisputable authority. It was like the universe picked me up and stared deep into my eyes and told me that it didn't give a fuck if I was skeptical of it or not. Something was going to happen, and it was going to occur whether I pulled on the right thread or not. My action, or lack thereof, was inconsequential. I almost conceived that I could slam my big scuffed wolverine boot down on the brake pedal of my car and it would keep barreling down the highway unfazed by my efforts to stop it. My shaking hands tried for the center console, but the stubborn latch refused to open. I grunted impatiently and thrusted my elbow into it, and it swung open with a screechy whine. With my eyes fixed on the road, scanning the dull glimmer of the tree line on the horizon, my fingers dug blindly through the sea of receipts and old phone chargers in the center console. Finally, I fished the bottle of Xanax bars out and bit the cap off. Jettering fingers broke one of the long rectangular pills in half and I swallowed it with a lukewarm sip of coffee. One milligram would do, though I knew more would follow later. It was apparent even then that it would be one of those days. Though, looking back, I really had no idea what kind of storm I was careening headlong into. Dalton was a city that seemed to like its sleep and very few establishments were open in the early morning hours. Of the few I could see, a Dunkin' Donuts caught my eye, and I stopped there because I needed sustenance if I was going to appear to be a responsible journalist, or at least one that didn't eat benzodiazepines for breakfast. A couple of glazed old-fashioned donuts went down relatively easily, and a fresh cup of coffee served to rescue my sagging eyelids. Sitting there in the parking lot, I gazed blankly out at the interstate. I knew that I could start my car and pull out onto the northbound lane. I could still call the whole thing off, say I was sick, head home and put on a Jim Croce album, smoke cigarettes and pop pills by my fireplace until the warm, toasty world went black. I could still stop this. But could I really? While parked in front of the merchant house, I debated the other half of the Xanax bar, but ultimately thought better of it. I needed something resembling an edge, and there would be time for oblivion later. It was a nice house, 
single story and sprawling, fitted with a fresh coat of taupe paint, and set back behind a neatly cut lawn that was accented by dormant rose bushes. I grabbed my messenger bag and lumbered across the lawn to the front door, my boots leaving fresh prints in the morning dew. Nathan's father caught me on the approach, and the door swung open before I could even knock. He was a tall man with sharp, angular cheekbones. I wasn't surprised to see him already fully dressed that early in the morning. Men of his age are always getting dressed up to do nothing. Can I help you, son? he asked. The wrinkles in his cheeks hung low, bearing the weight of his years. My name is Abel Kaufman, I told him. I'm a journalist from The Ruse. I spoke to your son on the phone. The Ruse? Nathan's father asked, scrunching his forehead into a mess of wrinkles. A news outlet called The Ruse? Is that supposed to be a joke? Yes, it is, Mr. Merchant. But don't worry, you're not the first person not to laugh. His expression slipped from befuddled to merely skeptical, and he stepped aside, letting me in. That doesn't exactly sound reliable. He paused for a moment and looked at me. I don't want you sensationalizing my son's story. He doesn't need that. None of us do. I assured him that I had nothing but their best interests in mind, but he didn't look convinced. And why should he be? The ruse, I thought, marginally humiliated. Where journalists go to die. The site I worked for read like a sloppy mashup of Vice and The Onion, a fringe publication that was perpetually unsure about how seriously to take itself. Anytime a guy on psychedelics claimed to be God, or a woman said she'd been impregnated by aliens, you could count on the ruse to be there, having a laugh at the subject's expense. So naturally, when the Dalton Police Department dropped a press release regarding Nathan's story, my editor was all over it. We stood in the dim hallway just inside the front door. Mr. Merchant swung the door shut, holding stern eye contact with me until long after I'd grown uncomfortable. You have a nice house, I said. He didn't reply. Nathan is here, right? I tried. He turned and looked down the hallway towards the living room, and then back at me. He opened his mouth, but held the words in for a few long seconds before finally saying, You know, Abel, this has been a very hard time for my son and I. The whole ordeal. But his resilience is something remarkable. He's taking it well. Much better than I'd expected. His eyes fell to the floor. Not that I expected any of this. I'm very glad to hear. What I mean to say is that my son is back home, and healthy at that. And I simply won't tolerate any efforts you make to jeopardize that. His well-being is very important to me. I opened my mouth to respond, but he piped up again before I could even get a word in edgewise. Abel, are you a father? He asked suddenly. I... I tried to inhale, but my chest felt stiff, unwilling to accommodate my breath. My mouth hung slack, my tongue paralyzed. He reached his hand out and gripped my shoulder, his lips pursed. Just do the right thing, son. That's all I'm asking. Our story isn't anybody's punchline. You understand? I nodded stiffly. He led me into the living room where Nathan sat, curled up on the sofa, reading a psychology textbook. He didn't look up or make any effort to greet me. Coffee? Nathan's father asked, disappearing into the kitchen. I'm okay, I managed. I slid my messenger bag off my shoulder and laid it gently on the coffee table. 
My curious gaze lingered on the young man that sat before me. Nathan? I asked, almost whispering. I reached a tentative hand out to shake his. He folded over the page he was reading and closed the book with slow deliberation. In the flesh, he said with a faint smirk. His hand was warm, his grip strong. I slowly lowered myself into the lazy boy adjacent to him. Abel, right? he asked, still smiling faintly. He had a thick head of brown hair, neatly cut and combed over. His eyes were brown, and his broad, smooth nose was dotted with freckles. His smile was bright, his teeth cleaner than mine. I could tell he wasn't a smoker. I'd read in the press release that he was 34 years old, but he didn't look much older than 20. Not the type of guy who could buy a six-pack without getting carded. He had a rangy, stocky build, and from the looks of it, he hadn't skipped a meal in a very long time. I finally realized that I was staring at him. Yes, I said, laughing. I'm Abel Kaufman. What's the name of your website again? he asked. The Ruse, I said, stifling a cringe. He laughed. The Ruse. I like that. You ever heard of the Ruse, Dad? No, his father replied simply from the kitchen. Well, what brings you all the way down here? Nathan asked, leaning back and sinking into the sofa cushions. I tried to censor my astonishment. Well, you, I said, unbelieving. Your story. It's compelling. People need to know about this. There might be somebody out there that can help us figure out what happened to you. Wouldn't you want that? I guess, Nathan said, turning to look out the sliding glass door. I just figured we would do this over the phone. Doesn't seem like something worth driving all the way down here for. I mean, I don't know what you've heard, but I don't have all that much to tell you. He stood and pretended to be distracted by something in the backyard. My hands fell softly into my lap. That's okay, I said. I'm not here to coax anything out of you. I felt like I was losing him. I just want to hear your side of it. That's all. Nathan's father returned from the kitchen with a steaming mug and sat next to his son. I pulled a digital recorder out of my bag and set it on the coffee table. Nathan looked at it skeptically. Is that okay? I asked, gesturing to the recorder. He nodded, so I clicked the record button. Whenever you're ready, I told him. Chapter 3 Nathan cleared his throat, his brown eyes scanning the room pensively. I guess I'll start at the beginning, he said. I did my undergrad at a small school called Edgewater State. It's up in Wisconsin, Madison area. Do you know it? I shook my head and scribbled the name of the school on a ragged notebook that lay in my lap. Go ahead, I said, feigning a look of preparedness. Most years since, I've gone back up to Madison at least once every winter, he went on. Absurd thing to do, I know. Their winters aren't so welcoming. But when I lived up there, I fell in love with ice fishing. Have you ever been? It took me a few seconds to realize that Nathan was waiting for a response. He gazed at me considerately, looking somewhat concerned. My mind was still on the highway, still contorted with a vague sense of unease. Ice fishing, I said finally. No, I've never been. He smiled faintly, as if remembering the quiet solitude of the frozen lake. There's nothing like it, he continued. Every year I go back up to visit friends and fish for a bit. A couple weeks. Just enough time to clear my head. 
Nathan bit his lip, his cheerful expression beginning to slip. His father reached over and gripped his son's knee firmly. I usually spend a few days in Madison, then I'll head up to Middleton or the Westport area. Great fishing up there. Last year, after Thanksgiving, I bought a new stick and reel. Fraybill, real nice rig. Solid graphite, stainless steel guides. I got a new ice drill assembly, too. I was pretty excited to get out there. I was having trouble deciding whether he really wanted me to know about his fishing gear or he was stalling. His expression was placid, but it could have been hiding something. I let him go on all the same. Well, anyway, he continued. I made my way up there. It was December. Colder than hell, but the air was still. Not a lot of wind chill, blue skies. It was my second or third morning there, and I left my hotel pretty early. Drove up towards Cherokee Marsh and parked my truck a ways back from the lake. He stopped then and squinted, as if he was remembering something profound. My eyes shot over to his father, who was looking at his son quizzically, and then back at Nathan. I'd parked out under a grove of trees, Nathan recalled, and I remember seeing something. It was an owl. A barn owl. They're rare these days in Wisconsin, especially that far north. I just remember something about it struck me. And just when I was going to go on my way, it called out a few times. Have you ever heard a barn owl cry out? No, I said, somewhat timidly. I immediately scribbled the word owl in my notebook, though I couldn't have said why. It's really more of a scream, he continued. It's eerie. It sounds human almost, like a startled child. An intangible chill fell across me. It wasn't so much Nathan's words as how he posed them. Like there was some hidden significance to the bird, some repressed trauma that lingered in his memory of it. He looked out at the backyard. I'm sorry, he said. This sounds stupid. No, I insisted. Straightening my posture with the hope of looking reserved. You're doing great. Nathan's father crossed his arms over his chest and gazed at me from under a sunken brow. I did my best to ignore him. Well, the owl flew off and I grabbed my fishing gear, Nathan went on. I'd set aside a little spot, not too far from shore. He squinted, as if struggling to remember what came next. I guess I was just gonna read and drink some tea while I waited for the fish to start biting. He spoke as if he were filling in the blank spots in his memory, suggesting what he thought he might have done rather than what he remembered. And nothing seemed unusual, I asked? Nothing about your surroundings was... off? I fidgeted in my seat, subtly writhing with anticipation. Nathan considered this. No, he said. Typical day. A creeping sensation made its way up my spine. So what happened next? Well he said, lifting his eyebrows and gazing up at me. I hope you're not expecting some cataclysmic revelation, because I promise you I don't have that. Of course not. Just what you remember. I tried to sound assuring, empathetic, but I was failing. My composure was beginning to slip. Nathan inhaled deeply. Well, I made it to my spot and got my hole drilled. I remember that. And I dropped my jig in the water. I stopped for a second and looked out at the vastness, the quiet. Then I took my seat, and that's about it. That's it? I asked, awe-stricken. He opened his palms to me, 
acknowledging the madness of the situation. That's it, he assured me. He looked baffled, but also somehow detached, as if he had already made peace with the fact that whatever had happened to him was beyond explanation. My imagination tore away from me, conjuring unspeakable terrors. I felt like I was in the presence of something eternal, something that could shift the paradigms of our world with impunity. And yet it chose to conceal itself. I shuddered at the thought before gathering myself and trying to proceed. The police found your abandoned fishing gear next to the hole, I said, checking my notes. And your boots. Do you remember taking them off? I could feel my face beginning to flush, the warm, still air pulling sweat out of my pores. I flinched, trying to circumvent the memories now pouring into my head. No, Nathan said, almost shamefully. So you were just sitting there, and then... Nothing, he conceded, until I woke up. I looked at my notes and then back at him incredulously. Seventeen months later? Nathan shot a tired glance at his father. He had the eyes of a prisoner begging for release. Yeah, seventeen months. He spoke the words as if they were a confession of some kind of crime. I turned my gaze subtly to his father, whose eyes were pregnant with tears. He noticed me and wiped them away. And the distance between that lake in Wisconsin and where you woke up. I paused to swallow, a wave of nausea sweeping over me. That was over a thousand miles. That's right, Nathan said. When I woke up, I was back here in Massachusetts. So, seventeen months of missing time and over a thousand miles traveled, and you have no memory of any of it? He shook his head, unable to speak. I tried to come to terms with the events, but they refused to conform to my understanding of the world. I looked at Nathan in disbelief, though his vacant expression hadn't changed. Naturally, I was inclined to think that he'd made the whole thing up. But why? He certainly wasn't looking for attention. I've heard of people faking their own death or trying to disappear, leaving in the night and starting anew. But those ones are usually trying to get out from under debt or the weight of their family. Simply put, Nathan didn't seem like the type. Everything I saw and heard indicated that he was being genuine, that he didn't know where he'd been. And maybe he preferred it that way. Maybe whatever took him from that lake was too terrible to face. The only other conceivable explanation was that someone had kidnapped him. But what could have been their motive? No ransom was ever demanded for his safe release. And even if someone had been holding him captive, how were they able to erase a year and a half from his memory? No drug was capable of sustaining amnesia for that long. My mind churned with possibilities, indefinable forces that acted in secret. Nathan's experience had awakened a primal fear inside me, a torturous enemy that I hadn't faced in years. It lodged in my gut with a chilling sensation, like an immovable glacier carving its way across a valley floor, slowly thrusting me back to that day in the Catskills when my life ended. Suddenly, Nathan's father got to his feet, startling me slightly. His face was red with emotion. You get everything you need then, son? Nathan and I both looked at him, but we could tell he was talking only to me. And I couldn't blame him. A good man does his best to protect his family. 
Honestly, no, Mr. Merchant, I stammered. I feel like we've just pretty much scraped the surface here. Well, it'll have to do for now. My son and I have plans. Nathan bit his lip and looked at me apologetically. I understand, I said, gathering my things. I don't want to impose. As I laid one of my business cards down on the coffee table, I looked back at Nathan one last time to see a faint glimpse of emotion breaking through his stony features. It was the only time all morning I'd seen anything like it on his face. Undeniably, it was fear.